Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Before telling you about today's program, I want to talk about Arlington Independent Media, also known as AIM, the place where Aging Matters is produced. For almost four and a half years, with the assistance of skilled AIM staff, trained volunteers, and state-of-the-art media equipment, I have been able to offer timely aging topics to help older adults lead healthier and more productive lives. AIM gives me the chance to produce shows that inform and enlighten older Arlington residents, their care partners, and families. AIM is a valuable community resource for Arlington's older adults, and I'm proud to be a part of and support this organization. I hope you will too. You can show your support with a tax-deductible donation at WERA.FM or ArlingtonMedia.org or by sending AIM a good old-fashioned check. Visit WERA.FM or ArlingtonMedia.org and look for the Donate button in the upper right corner. Please help support Arlington Independent Media a community resource that offers timely topics that matter to older adults. Thank you. Now, let me tell you about today's program. As the baby boom generation ages and advances in medical care are made, the number of older adult patients is increasing dramatically. An aging society also means an increase in spinal conditions that require assessment of how best to treat an aging adult while preserving quality of life. Today, my guest is Dr. Joseph Ferguson, Assistant Professor of Orthopedic Surgery who specializes in spine surgery at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. He's going to talk about common spine conditions affecting older adults and how treatment options, including surgery, are determined. He'll also discuss how to keep our spines healthy as we age. So welcome, Dr. Ferguson, and thank you for joining me today. Yes, thank you for having me. Well, Dr. Ferguson, I always like to give a little bit of an anatomy and physiology lesson, especially when we're talking about something as major as the human spine. So help us with this. Talk about what is the human spine and explain the different parts that are in the spine. Yeah, sure. And it is pretty complex, but we try to break it down and make it a little bit more simple for not only ourselves, but for everybody else and our patients as well. So the human spine is essentially the connective tissue that connects our head all the way down to our pelvis. 
and that consists of 33 bones, which we call vertebrae, as well as the cushions in between the bones, which are the intervertebral discs, and all the joints and ligaments and tendons that are associated with the spine. The uh, parts of the spine include the neck, which we refer to as the cervical spine, the thoracic spine, which is the part that encloses or connects to uh, the ribs and the breastbone, which is the upper back, and then the lumbar spine, which is the low back, where there are five lumbar vertebrae that are sort of unsupported by anything except uh, muscles. And then we have the tailbone, which is a sacrum, and that's the part that connects to the pelvis and the remainder of the lower extremities. So we probably do know what the functions are, but I'd like to hear your viewpoint because it might be much more complex. So explain, describe to us what the functions of the spine are. Well, the main function is to provide structure, two main functions actually. One is to provide structure. And in the cervical or neck and lumbar spine or low back, a lot of that is for both structure and mobility, as well um, as being able to provide a framework for the upper and lower extremities to move off of. In the thoracic spine, it's very stiff, and that's really because there's a cylinder of bone there. If you consider the thoracic vertebrae, which then attach to the ribs and wrap around to the breastbone in the front, there's not a lot of movement in the thoracic spine, and that's by design because it's protecting the lungs. And then the second main function for the spine is to house the spinal cord and all the nerves and provide them a conduit to get from the brain up and down into the arms, legs, and everywhere else in the body. So it really protects those neurologic structures. All right. And as we age, what happens? Where, what happens to our spine as, as older adults um, age? Well, the spine is a combination of joints. All of those uh, intervertebral discs and bone interactions are essentially joints. We also have two joints on the back at each level of the vertebrae called facet joints. And those are more like your knee or your elbow or other regular joints in the body. But regardless, orthopedics studies the movement of those joints. And as we get older, just like with our knees or our hips or our shoulders, you can develop arthritis. And in the spine, we call that spondylosis. The other thing that happens over time is that uh, gravity tends to affect all of us and pull us sort of forward. We live our life in front, and therefore gravity sort of pulls us down. And uh, as one of my mentors used to say, life is a kyphosing event. And kyphosis refers to sort of the curvature of the spine forward, whereas lordosis refers to the curvature of the spine backwards. So over time, we all develop more kyphosis than we would probably prefer. And are there risk factors? Are certain older adults more likely to have these issues with the spine than others? What, what are some of the risk factors that, um, that uh, could precipitate problems with the spine? Well, as with any issue in the human body, genetics does play a role. And we've identified some of the genes, but we know arthritis in general runs in families. And of course, quote unquote, bad backs also tend to run in families. So there's some genetic component as with anything. But lifestyle can affect it as well. A lot of people who have uh, worked manual labor jobs, um, drivers such as truck drivers or delivery drivers who are in the car for a long, uh, a lot of their work time tend to be affected. And then overall health such as smoking, general health conditions uh, tend to be related to uh, spinal degeneration as well. And does, does age play a factor? I mean, I always say aging matters is for everybody from 50 to 100. Uh, is there a certain age or does that vary also as to when these changes begin to occur? Right. 
Uh, a lot of it really starts to happen around the fourth decade, fourth to fifth decade. A lot of arthritis in general happens around that time. So we can expect that the spine would be affected like the other joints in the body are as well. And that's when people start to notice that the back pain that they may have had once or twice in their 20s becomes a little bit more consistent or pops up a little bit more frequently. So that's when the changes start to occur. And that's when we start to notice the changes on imaging, like x-rays also start to uh, show up. You mentioned a little bit earlier about spinal arthritis, and it is spinal arthritis, is that the same as what's also known as spondylosis? Yeah, spondylosis is really just a generic uh, overarching term for what we refer to as spinal arthritis. Uh, again, the intervertebral discs and vertebral bodies in the front column of the spine can develop wear and tear, and that's degenerative disc disease. Whereas those facet joints, those two joints at every level on the posterior column of the spine, are more uh, like your normal joints in the body. And those can develop wear and tear of the cartilage in between the two bony surfaces and, and suffer arthritis as well. So we refer to spondylosis as an overarching theme of spinal arthritis. But as a spinal surgeon and a specialist, we sort of delineate between those as to what the causes are because there are different treatments for uh, each one and different approaches to those. Okay, so let's start with, with what we're talking about right now, the, the spinal arthritis or the spondylosis. Explain what are the kind of signs and symptoms that uh, older adults should begin to, to look for? It's uh, just generalized back pain, uh, pain where if you sit for too long or you stand for too long, you start to feel that back pain. You need to get up and move around or change positions frequently. One big thing that we notice with arthritis in general is uh, something we refer to as startup pain, where first thing in the morning you need to stretch a little bit more than you used to, uh, or you have a little bit of trouble walking for the first few steps, but you can sort of walk it off over time. Also, it may respond to over-the-counter anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen, Aleve, things like that. And so that, that the spinal arthritis or spondylosis, that's different than degenerative disc disease. Is, is that correct? Well, degenerative disc disease is a component of spinal arthritis. It's one of the portions that can develop arthritis, one of the portions of the spine that can develop arthritis. Okay. And so that's, it's really kind of also another synonym, if you will, for the spinal arthritis or spondylosis? Yeah, it can be used uh, as a uh, sort of interchangeably from time to time. Yes. Okay. And so given the situation, does the, this uh, happen more with aging women or men? Or is there differences among racial groups? Uh, who's more likely to uh, get these conditions? It's an interesting question. It doesn't seem to discriminate between men, women and men or across uh, you know, any specific racial groups. We do have some studies that show that it's more common in women or that uh, pain is more common in women sometimes. Uh, but we also have studies that show the opposite. So it's hard to say. When we treat spinal arthritis, we're really trying to treat the patient's symptoms, not specifically what their x-ray or MRI might show. So the prevalence is actually very hard to study in conjunction with the imaging findings. So talk a little bit more about the, the common physical symptoms. You said there seems to be a, a, a difference in because you described earlier about the different parts of the spine, are the symptoms different with depending on which part of the spine is affected? I mean, again, I'm trying to 
help our listeners understand what to expect and are different parts of their spine going to be hurting and what kinds of symptoms are they going to have? Absolutely. And this is, this is great to demonstrate if um, any of the listeners have the uh, access to uh, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. There's some good diagrams on there. But we think about the spine in terms of a couple of columns, okay? So the anterior or, or forward column is the load-bearing column, and that's where you get the big structural component of the vertebral bodies and intervertebral discs. And the posterior column is where those facet joints are. So when you sit down or bend forward or lean forward, that's where the intervertebral discs are loaded more heavily, whereas when you stand up or lean back, that's where those facet joints in the posterior column or back column are loaded more heavily. So arthritis can exist in either of those or both of those. So some patients may have more pain with flexion, and that's an intervertebral disc problem. Some patients may have more uh, pain when they stand up or extend their back, and that's more of a posterior problem. Some patients, unfortunately, may have both, and that's why they have to change positions frequently and really feel pain all the time. Have you also found, I guess, so much of uh, what we think about nowadays is what our behavior has been like this past year. And I was wondering if, because you've been a, a surgeon in this area for quite some time, have you noticed that the behavior or what you're seeing insofar as uh, older adult patients uh has it changed over the past year when, say, people have been more isolated and stayed at home more and maybe sat more or their behavior was different? What have you seen? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's a great question. I have seen a lot of changes that patients have said they can directly correlate to their change in routine since the pandemic started. People are, uh, those that are still working, are working from home at uh, their home office or desk or their kitchen table or their couch in very uh, non-ergonomic friendly environments. Um, I've also noticed people not being able to go to the gym to do their normal workouts. Um, they're, they're not doing the things that they normally do. People are also working longer hours and sitting for longer periods of time. And all of that contributes to stiffer uh, backs, bad posture. People are getting weaker. And it, the, the spine really requires the musculature surrounding core musculature, we call it, to support those intervertebral discs and, and take the pressure off so that they're not experiencing heavier loads over longer periods of time. And and so they're sitting more probably and partaking in uh, Zoom meetings instead of moving around or going to the gym. Would you Would you agree? That's exactly right. So now the the physical symptoms of degenerative disc disease, is a, this is such a, like a glossary of terms. So are the symptoms different than, say, for someone who has degenerative uh, disc disease than maybe somebody who, and I won't say just, but might only have spinal arthritis? Uh, again, it's, it's so hard to sort of differentiate a diagnosis because there seems to be so many different con uh, conditions. It really is. That's a great point. And, you know, a great number of people experience back pain in their lifetime, and 85% of those people fit into a, a category that's called nonspecific back pain, meaning we can't give it a specific diagnosis such as degenerative disc disease or attribute it to spinal stenosis. Some of the time we can, but the good news is most of it responds to conservative treatment. And, you know, we can talk about that in a minute. But degenerative disc disease, spinal arthritis, it all exists on a spectrum. So the disc will eventually, if you think about it as the shock absorber between the bones, 
The disc will eventually wear out over time, much like the shocks in your car will. And when that happens, the other portions of the spine tend to take more load, and then they will tend to wear out and develop arthritis as well. So it really does exist on a spectrum over time. And then when we're talking about discs, we also hear about a herniated disc or a a bulging disc. Explain what each of those are and, and what the difference is, what causes them. What symptoms, what do you see? What, how, sure. how do you understand that? Sure. And, you know, without trying to get too technical, the disc itself has two components. It has an outer ring where it's almost like a membranous um, circumferential ring. And then the inner portion is a softer, more viscous type material with high fluid content. And that's where the shock absorption component comes in. So a herniated disc is when that viscous nucleus pulposus, it's called, actually herniates through that membranous outer ring, and that herniates into the spinal canal and can push on nerves. And even if it doesn't push on a nerve, it can be very, very painful, just the herniation itself, and create uh, what a lot of people think of as, quote, throwing their back out. Um, that is one cause of what people feel when they, when they uh, feel like they threw their back out. A bulging disc is more of a process over time, where that disc is heavily loaded repetitively for years and years, And then it can just sort of bulge uh, gradually over time because it's sort of losing that shock absorption capability. And are the causes and the symptoms of each of these two conditions, are they different? A herniated disc is a more acute process. That's something where patients can almost trace an event that it happened, such as uh, lifting something heavy, or at least a timeline in the last week or so where they felt it come on suddenly. A bulging disc typically is painful, and then if it does encroach on a nerve uh, or nerves in the spine, that it can become painful over a period of time. It tends to be more gradual. Okay. And now, as I was preparing these questions, I found yet another condition uh, that I'd like to have you talk a little bit. This is called spondylolisthesis. What what is that, and is is that similar to say like a herniated disc? Uh, help us understand the the difference. All right, I'll try not to get too complicated. There are a <laughs> lot of different types of spondylolisthesis, but we'll just focus on the the degenerative aging related spondylolisthesis for now. Okay. Um, I know this becomes this becomes very complex, and the terms become a little more than jargon even. So spondylolisthesis is the process where over time, one vertebrae starts to slip forward on another. And that can be related to degenerative disc disease, um, or it can be the process of the joints in the back not um, having enough integrity over time. And that sort of uh, one bone slipping forward on another is not only painful, but can also cause a pinched nerve and cause pain down the legs or one leg. Um, And it can create a variety of symptoms that are very, very difficult to deal with. And yet there's another, and then I want to ask you kind of a general question, but, and you mentioned it already, spinal stenosis. What causes that? And are there different types? And and talk about signs and symptoms. Yeah, so spinal stenosis. So stenosis just means that there's a narrowing of the space available for the nerves. So if it's in the central canal, meaning where the spinal cord and the majority of the nerves live, uh, it can pinch all of the nerves or pinch the spinal cord and create symptoms in arms, legs, or both. Or if you think about the spine as sort of a highway, 
And the center is where the spinal cord, the highway itself is where the spinal cord and the nerves run down. And then there are exit ramps between every vertebral level, a nerve comes out and goes down the arm or the leg and feeds a very predictable uh, uh, muscle group or area of skin. <clears throat> and stenosis can also affect those exit ramps where the nerves come out. And if it does that, it's gonna present with a very predictable pattern of pain, numbness, weakness, uh, and that's sort of what we think of as sciatica. So we can get stenosis in a variety of places throughout the spine at any level, in the neck, um, thoracic spine, or low back, and it will present in different ways. And are the signs and symptoms different than some of these other conditions we've talked about? The other conditions can lead to spinal stenosis. So if you think about uh, arthritis in general, it can create bone spurs, uh, space-occupying issues where the, the, the soft tissue structures are trying to stabilize the joint because there's not enough cushion. When that happens in the spine, it can encroach on that canal where the nerves are. Remember, we talked about the function of the spine as, as a conduit. So if those bony spurs or the, the increased um, hypertrophy of the joints where the joints actually get bigger, if those encroach in towards the nerves, that's what stenosis is, and that could cause nerve pain or weakness or numbness all of the, the neurologic functions that we think of. Well, I have to ask you, with all of these different conditions now that I've you know, asked for a definition and signs and symptoms, can you talk a little bit about your practice in terms of, especially in connection with older adults? Is there one condition that you see more than others? I mean, you talked a little bit about women versus men or different racial groups. Uh, what do you see the most of what as as we get older what what's more likely to happen what is there a smaller percentage say of certain conditions and larger than others or is it all even even itself out what would you tell us it's it's a variety honestly uh, i see all sorts of different conditions spondylolisthesis is a very common uh, degenerative finding over time but it doesn't necessarily mean that people are even going to have pain there are a great number of people out there with a spondylolisthesis that don't have any pain. And we know this from some studies we've done historically. We also know that there are people with bulging discs without pain. It really matters as to how the patient has responded to it. Uh, do they have the, the compensatory strategies positionally to take care of it and to manage that pain or to manage their posture such that the pain isn't causing a problem? But I really do see everything, and I see a, a broad spectrum of patients with very bad stenosis who may have minimal symptoms or very mild stenosis who have very severe symptoms. And it's really trying to, to tease out what the appropriate treatment for, the, for each patient is and how they're going to respond. Well, and then the, the symptom that we hear most about is back pain. It, it sounds like from what you're saying that it may or may not be related to spine problems. Is, is that true? Well, it can be related to the spine for sure, for all the diagnoses and problems that we've already discussed. But there's a lot of musculoskeletal type pain, such as uh, strain or uh, ligamentous or tendinous injuries that are they're related to the spine because they're a part of it, but they may be the cause of the pain, whereas the spine itself may be perfectly healthy or not be causing any pain. So the, the pain response is a chemical response, typically, that reacts to arthritis, which can cause that inflammatory chemical response. So what I'm hearing you say is, is that spine-related back pain could differ 
from muscle-related back pain. Is that true? That's very true. Absolutely. And then I guess I'm trying to, to drill down here in terms of the type of pain. Is some pain more kind of achy as opposed to a sharp pain? Or uh, what is the nature of the pain depending on what the source is uh, from where, where it's coming? Right. So the back, the lumbar spine especially, really requires a solid core of strength. If you remember back when we talked about the core, the, the cylinder of bone in the thoracic spine or upper back where the ribs are involved, that's a very stable structure. In the lumbar spine, you really just have five small vertebrae stacked on top of each other, and the remainder of your midsection is all muscle. It's all the, the abdominal muscles, the low back muscles. And when those muscles aren't strong enough or they don't have the endurance to maintain posture, then we really put more pressure on the spine, including the intervertebral discs and the joints of the spine, and ask them to do more work. And over time, they will wear out and not be able to do the work as well. So th there is a combination of the spondylosis or arthritis pain from the joints and the discs in the spine, and also the muscle fatigue, because the core strength is really trying to take the pressure off the spine, but it also fatigues. And when the muscles fatigue, they also cause some pain. So they are closely related, and that's why, like I said, about 85% of, of people with back pain, we can't fit them into a specific uh, diagnosis because there may be multiple factors going on. Well, and that's what we're going to talk about in the second half of this program. We're going to take a short break right now for an important message. Uh, for those folks who might have tuned in a little bit late, we're talking with Dr. Joseph Ferguson, who specializes in spine surgery at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And you are listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Joseph Ferguson, who specializes in spine surgery at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And before the break, we were talking a lot about the different types of conditions that Dr. Ferguson sees and in, in his patients. And we really focused a lot on the physical aspects of these conditions. But Dr. Ferguson, I'd like to, before we get into diagnosis and treatment, just ask you what you see insofar as the mental and emotional symptoms that result with your patients as a result of the degenerative disc disease and these other conditions of the spine. What, what do you see? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's actually a huge component in what we do and how we treat people is because the pain associated with degenerative disc disease and spinal arthritis is pain that is constant for patients. And a lot of people I see have some component of depression, whether they have it in their medical record or whether they just say that they feel more depressed because of their pain. 
And I think it's because we use our back and our neck muscles for literally everything we do, every breath we take or every step we take, even rolling over in bed at night. Patients complain that they have severe pain in their back, even trying to sleep because they can't get into a comfortable position. And the, the example I give to a lot of people is if you sprain your wrist, you can put that in a splint and protect it and not really move it and let it heal. But if you have something going on with your back, you really don't have a way to give it any sort of rest. We still have to walk around, we still have to work, we still have to do our normal activities. So it is, it is literally torture to have this pain with every single movement that people do. And I think that can lead to depression or at least lead to some you know, significant frustration. So I think it's a huge part of it. Well, and I'm sure that has a lot to do then in terms of diagnosing and determining what the treatment is going to be. But before we get to the treatment, help us understand how you diagnose with so many variables, both the physical as well as the mental uh, issues that you're seeing in each of your, your, your patients. Are there certain tests that kind of are standard or are there different types of diagnostic tests that are used depending on what the description of the symptoms are from any of your patients? Right. And with any uh, disease or with any problem, of course, you know, the, the medical system has a bit of an algorithm, which we all try to adopt to our own, uh, our own liking. The, as with any diagnosis, what we learn in medical school is that 90% of patients can be diagnosed with a good history alone, just listening to the patient, listening to what their problems are, how it started, what makes it better, what makes it worse, those kind of questions. So that really is where we start. And if you take that into consideration with the uh, large number of patients like we talked about earlier that fit into the nonspecific back pain um, diagnosis that we, we can't find a diagnosis even with all the tests, then um, you know we, we more work on an algorithm of specific symptoms of pain in the leg or pain with specific movements before we move on to special testing. But the first thing we do is try conservative management. You know, have they tried taking uh, Tylenol or NSAIDs? Have you tried physical therapy to work on the core strengthening we talked about? Because by strengthening those muscles, you can offload the spine that a lot of people will get better just by doing routine stretching and strengthening and some anti-inflammatories for a short course. Um, but moving on beyond that, if they've tried that and they haven't gotten any better, that implies that there is something specific going on that may need more uh, closer look. When we look at specific tests, the first thing we do is get plain x-rays just from the front and from the side, whether it's the neck, the low back, or the, the thoracic spine. X-rays alone can offer us a lot of information and at least tell us that the overall health of the bones and the discs in the spine are in good shape or whether we see some arthritis. And like we talked about earlier, the first signs of arthritis on those x-rays are usually around the fourth or fifth decade of life. So uh, in the 30s and 40s is when we start to see it. It can be progressive over time. With that said, I have a lot of patients in their 70s and 80s that have incredible looking spines and they still have some back pain. So we still have to try to tease it out. Um, after an x-ray, we have three-dimensional imaging and that's what we consider the MRI or the CT scan and you know, different patients are indicated for those depending on what their symptoms may be. So from what I'm hearing you say, either the x-ray or the MRI or the CAT scan is usually the best way to kind of see what the situation is and, and how to treat it. Right, 
Right, so we take that information and we correlate that to the patient's symptoms. And if they both make sense together, then we have a diagnosis at, at least. And some of the time uh, that can be treated in various ways, uh, which you know, we'll talk about in a few minutes. But a lot of patients also have pain in one specific area, but they have, may have pathology in the other area. And that's what I was saying earlier, is that the imaging really has to fit with the patient's symptoms. And and to that point, Dr. Ferguson, the other question or an additional question that I had was, as you're thinking about the best treatment, oftentimes you do have older adults who have other pre-existing conditions or in other conditions that are related to getting older. Does, is that part of your thought process in terms of determining what the the best treatment is for these various spine conditions? How do you assess that? Of course, we have to take into account the, the whole patient and anything that may be going on. A lot of times, because all of the abdominal organs are in close proximity to the lumbar spine, and we have uh, we then have to think about those as a potential cause because those may actually be more serious and we may have to get them to the appropriate specialist if that is the problem that is causing what's, what's known as referred pain uh, to the low back or to the um, thoracic spine or to the neck. So there are other things we have to think about and rule out before we can truly attribute it to the spine, even when it's nonspecific pain. One thing that you did mention a little bit earlier was about physical activity and an exercise for for treating uh, these conditions. How often does that really the best uh, treatment of choice? And I I wanted to add another layer, and that's uh, physical therapy. Uh, that regimen, that treatment regimen, is that often used or sometimes used? What would you tell us? It, it really should be used as the first line treatment in just about anybody. So. If it's just back pain or just neck pain, and it's only been going on for a few weeks, then the first line treatment should really be to strengthen the muscles surrounding the area, make them more flexible. Seeing a physical therapist can help uh, calm the pain down. They have good strategies to help calm the pain down, and then we'll teach uh, patients how to get stronger and develop more endurance in those muscles to protect the spine. So that should really be the first line treatment is activity, exercise, physical therapy for just about anybody with these degenerative conditions. Do you find that for those people for whom you prescribe physical therapy, that even if they're taught uh, certain exercises, that they continue doing that? So, <laughs> Great question. People are often very good about doing their exercises when they have just experienced an episode of pain. And as that pain goes away, as we all do with um, routines in life, we tend to do our air therapy exercises less and focus less on our own, um, our own well-being and take care of everything else in our life that comes about. And oftentimes people will realize that I've had multiple patients uh, come back and say, well, I've been doing my exercises again and it seems to be helping uh, and now I'm, I'm feeling a lot better. And then they don't continue. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to uh, to verify with you is is that is it true that probably some type of say stretching exercises or some something similar that perhaps somebody did learn by going to a physical therapist is really something that should continue always, you know, for the rest of their life, even if they're not having any pain. 
Absolutely. Several times a week, at least, that core strengthening and flexibility routine that you can learn from a physical therapist or uh, an athletic trainer or someone that is knowledgeable about the body and how to um, uh, make you stronger and work on your core strength and flexibility. By doing that just a couple times a week, you can keep yourself healthy for a long period of time. So a healthy back is one that is both flexible and strong, and that will take the pressure off of all of those structures that we talk about that can be pain generating, such as the disc and the facet joints. Okay, well, let's talk about medications. Are there certain medications that are the treatment of choice for spondylosis conditions? And if so, what type of, uh, of medications do you prescribe? So the first line is anti-inflammatories. And the over-counter anti-inflammatories are the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, or NSAIDs. Those include ibuprofen, uh, the brand names are, are Motrin and, and an Advil, as well as Aleve or Naproxen. We also have prescription strength anti-inflammatories we use, um, as well as uh, more second-line NSAIDs, such as Celebrex and Movic or Meloxicam. And a lot of patients may be familiar with these from treating arthritis in the knees or hips or elsewhere in the body. The other medications, a lot of patients can't take NSAIDs for blood pressure reasons or kidney reasons. Uh, there is a Tylenol arthritis that's available that's often very good. And then we sort of have a spectrum of medications, and I often refer patients to a pain management doctor to deal with certain medications based on what their symptoms are. So there are nerve medications like gabapentin or Lyrica that some patients will take if they have stenosis causing nerve pain. Muscle relaxers can also be effective in the short term. We don't really like to give those to older patients because the adverse reactions tend to be a little higher, but they can still be effective for a short period if muscle spasm is a main complaint due to like an acute exacerbation of pain. We really don't try to rely on narcotics anymore. I think we've seen that we're dealing with one pandemic right now, but I think the first pandemic we had experienced in recent times is the, the opioid pandemic. So we really try not to use narcotics for anything except immediate post-operative pain. And then try to get the patient off of those as quickly as possible? Absolutely. We, we don't like to have patients on sustained medication, if at all possible. But there are some patients that require prolonged medication because perhaps their uh, diagnosis is not amenable to surgery, but they've not really made enough progress with therapy to have an excellent quality of life. So there are some medications that are safe to take longer term. But you're absolutely right. I mean, we don't want people to rely on medication permanently, if at all possible. I think the other thing that's difficult in terms of narcotics is the side effects as well, which can be difficult uh, for older adults. And again, there might be some interaction that results uh, because they're taking other medications as well. Would you agree? I absolutely agree. And that's not just true of narcotics. It's true of the anti-inflammatories and the muscle relaxers and uh, the nerve medication as well. But absolutely with the narcotics, they're just um, not predictable medications. And people develop a tolerance to narcotics over time, and they're not effective at uh, reducing pain as time goes on because of that tolerance buildup. Let's also talk about steroid injections. We see that uh, or hear about that very frequently in terms of treating spondylosis. Uh, what? Tell us a little bit more about that. What types of injections are used? How often should they be used? What would you tell us? 
So steroids are anti-inflammatories. We talked about the uh, Advils and Aleves being non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Steroids are sort of bigger gun anti-inflammatories that can reduce the inflammatory cascade that happens when you feel the pain. So arthritis or spondylosis is an inflammatory uh, condition and it increases the chemicals in your body that cause pain. So by injecting steroids directly to the area where we believe the pathology exists, we can actually deliver these steroids and reduce those chemicals and reduce pain in that way. So we have a lot of patients who have spinal stenosis, which is the narrowing of the canal, where the steroids can be delivered epidurally or right around the nerves, and then the steroids can bathe the nerves and actually decrease the inflammation surrounding that area. There are other patients that have the facet joint arthritis and have pain when they lean back or extend their back like we talked about, and they may be more amenable to a direct steroid injection into those facet joints. I'm guessing a lot of your listeners have had um, knee pain in the past and may have gotten a steroid injection from their uh, orthopedic surgeon in their knee, which may have helped them with their knee arthritis. It's a very similar theory in the back, but it's harder to deliver the medication to the right area. So you really have to go see a pain management specialist and they use x-ray to deliver the medication to the exact spot based on what the patient's symptoms and imaging shows. I've seen a lot of patients respond really well to steroid injections, regardless of what their pathology may be. And they may not be permanent. Uh, They may only last for a few weeks. Sometimes they'll last for a few months or even a few years. If you have a steroid injection and then do physical therapy and work on your core strength and your activity and your endurance, then that steroid injection may just be the little boost you needed to get over the hump and get your back back to a healthy position. And I was curious, Dr. Ferguson, as to how, say, in a year period, is there a magic number in terms of how many steroid injections are safe or or what? I'd, I'd have to refer you to one of my pain management uh, colleagues. They really they do a fellowship and really specialize in um, the technique and uh, methodology of the steroid injections, along with medication management. Uh, and titration of those various medications that we talked about. But the general number that I typically hear from patients is about three a year. So most pain management doctors won't do more than three steroid injections within a year. Okay. And now we're getting closer to the area where, which is, of course, your specialty. But I, I wanted to hear a little bit more about conservative treatments. What, when are, what are conservative treatments? treatments. Maybe we've talked about those already, but if there's something that we miss, I'd like to hear that from you. Um, And then what is kind of the factor that says, I think it's time for surgery? How does that happen? Sure. So conservative treatments involve medication, like we've discussed, physical therapy, chiropractic treatment is another option. We've interestingly seen a lot of uh, good data for acupuncture as well. And then pain management, so titrating medications, talking about steroid injections. Pain management physicians also have several other modalities that they can use, like radiofrequency ablation, spinal cord stimulators. There are other things that can be done. But ultimately, when those treatment uh, options are no longer effective and the pain is interfering with your life on a day-to-day basis, that's when we start to talk about surgery as a potential option. And that's really different for everybody. Some people feel as though they just can't get through their normal day, whether it's 
their job, taking care of their house, playing with their grandchildren or children. Some people just don't feel like their quality of life is where it needs to be, even with all this treatment. So uh, if the, like I said, if there is a surgical indication on MRI or CT scan or x-ray, and it matches the patient's symptoms, then that's when we start to talk about what those surgical options may be. And that's exactly what I'd like to hear. I I understand because I actually watched uh, a bit of a video, or in fact, all of the video that you presented. Explain the different types of surgery. I think people get nervous because they think it's really going to be major. So I'd like to hear both the all uh, the whole range of of surgery uh, procedures that are performed, and especially hear more about the minimally invasive surgery, which I think is is newer. Tell us about those. It is. So surgery is really the best treatment when you have a neurologic compression, meaning pain running down your arm or your leg that is being caused by a pinched nerve due to the spinal stenosis that we talked about earlier. Uh, when that happens, we can actually decompress that nerve. And sometimes the, the level where the uh, nerve is being pinched by decompressing the nerve, we may have to actually take away enough bone that it destabilizes that level, and that may require a fusion procedure, or it might not decompress the spine, and we can just do the decompression of the nerve alone to relieve that pressure. So other conditions that uh, are ideal for surgery are, like we discussed, spondylolisthesis, where the vertebrae, one vertebrae is slipping forward on another, and that would benefit from a fusion as well to stabilize that level so those nerves aren't being pitched and that level isn't causing more and more pain. There's a variety of spine surgeries that can be performed in the neck, in the thoracic spine, or uh, very commonly in the low back as well. Some of them are bigger surgeries and some of them are smaller surgeries. I think everybody is trying to minimize the effect of surgery because surgery can be a very large um, process with a lot of recovery, depending on what specifically each patient needs. So tell us a little bit more about the minimally invasive surgery. What exactly happens during during that? I, I noticed one thing, for example, is patients can be in different positions when this is uh, performed. Uh, explain a little bit more about the, this, this procedure. Right. So for degenerative disc disease, depending on where it occurs in the spine, sometimes we can even go, we can go in from the back or sometimes we can even go in through the front or even the side, just below the ribs to uh, open up the space for the nerves and stabilize the spine between the two vertebral bodies by placing what we call an intervertebral cage or device to stabilize that area and help fuse the spine at that level. So we go through smaller incisions and do less dissection of those big back muscles that you have to try to decrease the morbidity of surgery and decrease the recovery time associated with spine surgery, which is one of the, the detriments of spine surgery, frankly. And and thank you for getting into that because I, I'm trying to imagine if I was sitting and you were going to tell me about my need for back surgery and you explained the type of surgery that you recommended that I have, what do you tell me first about the risk of complications? We'll start with that. So anytime we're working around the spine, there's always uh, the risk of potentially injury to a nerve where you may have some weakness 
or some numbness in the leg or the arm after surgery. That's not very common, but it does happen. We can have some pain radiating down the leg or the arm related to some of those nerves, and that usually gets better over time. Anytime we do surgery, you know, we always talk about the risk of bleeding or infection. Those are pretty uh, small risks too. Uh, the main risks are working around the nerves and the potential need for further surgery in the future. So by stabilizing one level or fusing one level in the spine, if you recall that there are 33 bones in the spine, that doesn't mean that you won't have a problem at another level in the future. And I think that's where spine surgery sometimes gets uh, a bad reputation because people think that their spine surgery didn't work when they have to have another procedure or they develop back pain four or five years later after a surgery, when in reality, they're experiencing arthritis through their whole spine as they age, and they may have uh, an issue at a different level from where they had surgery in the past. And when you do this kind of procedure, what are we talking about in terms of a timeline? Uh, how many days, say, in the hospital? What's what? Is the length of the recovery period? Is there the likelihood of rehab? Uh, what is the usual kind of modus operandi for patients, or or does it vary? Explain a little bit more about what a person would have to expect if they were going to have surgery. Yeah, every patient is different, and every diagnosis is different. But in general, uh, we tell people they can expect to be in the hospital if they're undergoing a fusion procedure. Uh, a couple nights in the hospital just so we can make sure that they're medically stable, their pain is well controlled, um, that they are getting up and moving around well. We always make sure they get good physical therapy while they're in the hospital. So a couple nights in the hospital is to be expected after having uh, a low back fusion or a, a neck fusion procedure. Some patients that undergo minimally invasive surgery can go home uh, within a day or two, um, whereas some that have or require a larger open procedure might take two or three days to go home. The need for rehabilitation, most patients can go home and we'll send them home and have a therapist come to their home to help them recuperate in the short term. Some patients need to go to rehab, whether that's because they're not getting around as well or whether they you know, just have needs that are beyond what their family or their household is able to provide in the short term. And eventually we'll go home after that. And the expectation as to recovery, are we talking about four weeks, six weeks, six months? What do you tell your patients? I tell them that surgical aches and pains can be expected for, you know, plus or minus six weeks after surgery. But, you know, we have, like we talked about earlier, postoperative pain medication uh, that can really ease that time and make it very bearable. The fusion process, if we're talking about a fusion procedure, fusion generally takes three months or so before uh, the bones are fused solid, and we let you go back to doing normal activities, whether that's uh, playing golf or uh, getting out, lifting heavy objects, things like that, if uh, patients like to garden or, or uh, move things around the house. So we try to restrict a little bit of your activities to protect the surgery in the short term so that the... Um, the spine isn't relying on the instrumentation we put in, but really we get a good solid fusion. If you think about it sort of in terms of if you break a bone, it takes about the same amount of time for a bone to heal as it does for the spine to fuse after a surgery like this. Okay, well, we don't have a lot of time left, but even though you are a surgeon and you do a lot of spinal surgery, I would welcome, and I'm sure our listeners would uh, as well, 
What can you tell older adults about how they can keep their spines healthy? I mean, we've talked a little bit about of some uh, activities already, but kind of remind us of, as we're aging, what we need to do. Stay active, stay active, stay active. That's the best thing you can do for your overall health. It's the best thing you can do for your spine as well. I think it's really important to have some sort of professional, whether it's a therapist or a personal trainer, look at your um, uh, spine, whether the position you hold yourself in and your posture to see if you're getting uh, the most out of the way you're doing exercises to help keep your spine healthy. But in general, I just tell people to keep moving and stay active, whatever they're interested in or whatever uh, activity they like to do. I think the other thing too would be uh, watch watch your weight as well. I know we have a big problem in our country with obesity. Can obesity have a, a bearing on uh, spine problems? Yeah, of course. The more weight that you carry, the more weight you're asking the intervertebral discs and the joints in your spine to withstand with every step you take. So uh, one pound of weight loss is going to result in a couple pounds lost off of the pressure on the discs and the joints in the spine. Good advice. Well, final question, Dr. Ferguson, since you gave so much information, what what would you tell our listeners are the best resources for older adults and their families to learn about spinal conditions? Where where should they look? There's a lot of really good info uh, at orthoinfo.aaos.org. And they have good uh, preliminary exercises. They have good overviews of all the diagnoses we discussed, as well as some of the surgeries that we discussed. And they can give good information and um it's actually a searchable tool in there to look each one up, depending on what your doctor may have recommended. And how about uh, information about MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, where you are? Is there a, a good website that they can check out? Yeah, just medstar.net or search uh, MedStar Georgetown University Orthopedic Surgery, and you will find our website. We have a very easy website to navigate that includes not just our spine surgeons, but all of our orthopedic surgeons. Um, we have offices at Georgetown in um, Northwest DC, but also in Friendship Heights, McLean, and at Lafayette Center downtown, along with several other offices around the uh, Southern Maryland region. All right. Well, I want to thank Dr. Ferguson with MedStar Georgetown University Hospital for joining me today. If you want to learn a little bit more about aging matters, best way to do so is to visit our website at www.agingmattersonline.com. And if you go to that site, you will be able to access Aging Matters radio and TV show content, as well as find the Aging Matters podcasts on Apple and Spotify, which this program will be posted on uh, after broadcast today. Be sure to subscribe to the Aging Matters monthly email newsletter. That way you can each month receive updates about new radio shows and TV episodes, as well as check out ones that have already been broadcast. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. And to learn more about that company, log on to inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember... Age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.
Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs.